Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. It was an unbelievable crime. Hideous, unexpected, baffling. A crime destined to become the most notorious and obsessive cold case in Cincinnati history. On that long ago day in September on the cusp of autumn, we were horrified by the blaring brick of murder headlines. Jerry, his pretty wife Linda, and their young daughter Debbie were found stabbed to death in their home in the city's Bridgetown neighborhood. Striking between the fourth and fifth slayings of the Cincinnati Strangler in 1966, the brick of killer plunged a city already on edge into an abyss. A half century later, the brick of mystery lingers in cobwebs and survives on whispers. Enter Cincinnati crime writer J.T. Townsend, author of local bestseller Queen City Gothic. J.T. was given unprecedented access to the case file, laden with information that never saw the light of print before, evidence that might illuminate the relentless rumors that police screwed up the crime scene or covered up for the suspect. Fifty years later, true crime detective J.T. Townsend answers who done it and renders a final verdict. As an armchair detective stalking a mystery killer, Townsend is not shackled by presumption of innocence or reasonable doubt. All evidence is admissible. In this gripping excavation, Townsend jettisons the implausible until we arrive at the probable truth. Townsend finally addresses the question, who killed the Bricka family? book we're featuring this evening is Summer's Almost Gone, The Bricka Family Murders, the Most Notorious Cold Case in Cincinnati History, with my special guest, journalist and author, J.T. Townsend. Welcome back to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, J.T. Townsend. Dan, it's uh, good to be back with you. Thank you. It's uh, always a pleasure. Let's get to, write, as you write in the book, your personal connection to this you say you were, if I'm not correct, 13 in September 66, and a serial killer was on the loose. Tell us a little bit about what that meant to you and your memory of that. Tell us a little bit, as you write in the book, about what you were doing when you were 13 and this happened. Yeah, actually, I was uh, I was 12 years, about nine months. Uh, I was going into seventh grade. And obviously, Dan, um, the the fears of junior high, you know, being in with uh, all these older kids, and uh, I'd gotten taller over the summer. Uh, Girls were kind of looking interesting. Um, And we had a serial killer on the loose. He killed four victims. And um, I wasn't in school more than a couple weeks, and then this beautiful family, the Brickas, are murdered in their home. Um and obviously not by the Cincinnati Strangler. So we have a completely separate crime. And I think if you, if you read my introduction, um, I had a horrific nightmare about this crime a couple nights after it happened, that the Brickett killer had got in our house and was killing my family. Right. And it was just extremely memorable. And um, uh, I said it in the book. I was almost 13, Dan, and I peed the bed. This nightmare was so horrific, and thus began a 52-year obsession of mine to solve this case. You talk about November 2014 being a very significant date. Um, Tell us what happened in November 2014 that changed your situation regarding this case. Well, um, the, the, the book... The book Summer's Almost Gone does not exist without my access to that case file. Uh, That was the day I sat down with Hamilton County Sheriff's Department, two cold case officers, and myself. And, Dan, there was the file. 
crime scene photos, morgue photos, interviews, evidence, all sitting there. And, and I've been waiting, um, oh, I guess, what, 40, uh, 48 years at that point to see this information, and suddenly there it is. And it was astounding. Uh, I looked at the crime scene photos. Uh, I had envisioned this crime in my mind. It was nothing like I thought it was, and it basically changed my theory of the crime and pretty much spawned this book. You talk about the crime itself, September 27, 1966, when the bodies were discovered. But you talk about the family itself, Jerry, Linda, and young child, Debbie. So tell us a little bit about Jerry and Linda and their life, the Bricka family life. Tell us a little bit about their background and their life together. Well, they were both... um... Um, Jerry was raised in San Francisco, Linda in Chicago, uh, both upper-middle-class families. Um, they met while she was an airline stewardess for American Airlines out of Seattle. And um, uh, they started dating, and Linda got pregnant almost immediately, and they had a rather hurried marriage in November of 1961. Uh, they'd only known each other six months. So uh, Linda was... Um, only uh, 18 at the time. Jerry was 23. So rough start for a young couple. Um, Debbie was born, um, beautiful child. Um, Jerry, um, I think, has been described as kind of a workaholic. Uh, he was very career-oriented, job-oriented, focused on work. Linda was stunningly beautiful. Um, and uh, I got family photos uh, from the family of her, in the book that were never published. Um, One of the problems with the book originally, well, I didn't have any good photos of her, just newspaper photos. And Mm -hmm. suddenly I had photos that showed just how stunningly attractive she was. And um, the fact that she was an ex-airline stewardess, very beautiful, with a workaholic husband, kind of started the rumors about this case. Um, But... um, just a typical kind of middle-class family in Cincinnati, uh, living in a nice neighborhood. Um, And suddenly all three of them are murdered. Uh, Why? That's the question everybody in Cincinnati and the West Side has been asking for 52 years. You know, why have all those neat... Hello, JT. Yes, we were hey, cut what? off. Um, yeah. We were wow. cut off. So let's go back and let's talk about uh, about Jerry and Linda and Debbie, a little bit about their background. Okay. We, um, we, didn't, we didn't get any of that before, I guess. Um, we got just an introduction to them, uh, just a okay. little bit about, just about their okay. living arrangement. Um, and then you said they wound up, um, passed away. What I was going to ask you as well about the Bricka family, you write in this book at the same time about the Cincinnati Strangler. Yes. Why is this important uh, to include the Cincinnati Strangler at the same time that you have this parallel investigation into the Bricka murder mystery? Well, I think it um, um, obviously the Cincinnati Strangler and the Bricka murders were concurrent. Uh, They happened, obviously, both during 1966. Um, The city was already on edge from four women being killed by the Strangler when the Brickas were killed. And if the the Brickas are the most notorious cold case in Cincinnati history, then the fifth Cincinnati Strangler victim, Alice Hockhausler, who was murdered two weeks after the Brickas, that's the second most notorious cold case in Cincinnati history. She was a very prominent victim, wife of a chief of surgery at a major hospital, mother of nine. So we had this beautiful family murdered in late September 66, and two weeks later, this society matron, 51 years old, is struck down on her own driveway at midnight by the Cincinnati Strangler. So it's difficult to separate the Strangler and the Bricka murders, uh, the combination of the Brickas being killed and Alice Hockhausler really launched the largest law enforcement mobilization in city history at that time.
You talk about the misconception, too, of the profile that all serial killers are white. And in this case here, we see so many reports of attacks by black males. Um, tell us why this is important in this story. Well, I th- again, I think there is a misconception, two of them actually, that serial killers are invariably white males and that they never stop killing. And, and both those uh, assumptions are false. Um, black serial killers occur roughly as the same uh, percentage of black people in the population. About 12 to 13 percent of serial killers are black. But other than Wayne Williams, uh, the Atlanta child killer, allegedly, um, there's not a lot of publicity, publicity about them. But, you know, with Cincinnati, it's the 60s. Cincinnati is extremely conservative, Dan, still is. And we've got the Vietnam War going on, there are race riots. Uh, the backdrop of the 60s has got Cincinnati kind of befuddled, you know, hippies, uh, you know, uh, radical free love movements, things like that. And um, suddenly we have a allegedly black serial killer killing elderly white mothers and really the fertilizer just hit the fan with this and um, it exacerbated racial tension extensively in Cincinnati Um, black men were rounded up and pulled into lineups without any due process Um, uh, civil rights groups assailed this but the fear was so palpable that in the end no one really cared that anyone's rights were being violated so the, the racial tension in Cincinnati during the reign of the Strangler uh, was certainly a big part of the story. Um, a mysterious black man killing elderly white women. And then the Bricker case lands right on top of this. Um, a beautiful suburban family stabbed to death in their own home. Um, I'm really a little stunned, Dan, that uh, a national crime show has yet to do a a story on this and my agent and I are working on just that Um, I think what Cincinnati went through in 1966 on a true crime level was profound and it would be certainly not a stretch to say that uh, Cincinnati lost its innocence in 1966 Uh, what did Mark Twain say the world were coming to an end I'd move to Cincinnati and have 10 more years to live because nothing it takes so long for things to get to Cincinnati but um, you know this was something these crimes were like something that would have happened in New York or Chicago or LA but it was Cincinnati you know how could it happen here let's talk about the crime itself what police find once they are alerted to this and how police are alerted to the Bricker family and something amiss you talk about the neighbors and their reaction and their response. Uh, tell us about that and how they find out. But then again, what are the characteristics about the murder that seem to baffle police from the onset? Yeah, they were um, um, Sunday night, September 25th, the rainy Sunday night. Um, not a lot of people are out. Uh, it's the world television premiere of Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, at the time, 60 million people tuned in, the largest to ever watch a movie on TV at the time. Uh, Jerry Brick is seen taking out his garbage cans at 9 p.m. by a neighbor. That's the last time anyone saw any of the family. Um, Jerry didn't make a flight the next morning for his business trip. All day Monday, uh, newspapers sat out, garbage cans sat out. Neighbors kind of wondered, but they assumed the family might be out of town. Uh, it wasn't until Tuesday night, the 27th, that some alarmed neighbors did investigate. Again, the garbage cans are still out. There's three newspapers on the sidewalk in front of the house. They can hear the family's dogs barking inside. And two neighbors lean in the front door, which is unlocked, and are assaulted by the unmistakable stench of dead bodies in the Bricka house. And that's about 10.45 on that Tuesday night. And that's when the that's when the call went out. Um, and you you had mentioned what what were the circumstances of this crime that baffled investigating officers? 
obviously they were hamstrung immediately from the get-go. The first 48, it's gone. You know, um, right. no, nobody is aware from Sunday night to Tuesday night that these people have been murdered. Uh, you know, witness memories start to recede into the rearview mirror after 48 hours. I mean, how many, can you remember what you had for for dinner three nights ago, Dan, or who you saw mm-hmm. near your house? Um, it's totally hamstrung the investigation. If the bodies had been discovered the night of the murder, uh, murders, uh, we've probably got a different situation. So they got a, a really late start. There was conflicting jurisdictions. There was four different police jurisdictions at this crime scene, and um, the crime scene was unsecured for the first two hours, which is not that unusual for a 1966 crime scene. You know, there's no sign-in log, there's no hazmat suits or gloves, there's no, there's no detectives trained in evidence collection. These detectives have to do everything themselves. And the crime scene was unsecured, and the rumors immediately started. Um, that this was a screw-up. But I don't think it was. I can expand on that if you like. Yes. Well, there's also some features of the, I talked about the characteristics, that they found no struggle from the victims and also no forced entry that they could see. Right. What are a couple of the other circumstances that seemed, again, odd or they they noted? And then you can, uh, again... Again, we talk about what's interesting as well is that no struggle, but Jerry, if you could describe Jerry, it's sure. more unusual that he would not have fought. Well, I think even even with the 48-hour delay of discovery, Dan, I think the lead investigator, Herb Vogel, once he arrived and shut down the crime scene, he made a couple of very correct assumptions, I think almost immediately, um, one being that the Brickas knew the killer or killers. And right. we see a lot of signs there of the family being lulled into a sense of security. Um, there is no forced entry. There is no sign of a struggle. Uh, there are no defensive stab wounds. Uh, the two dogs, known to be aggressive barkers, especially around strange men, strangely quiet, uh, not only the night of the murders, but for days afterwards. Um, no neighbors hear anything, and the, the houses on either side, Dan, are very close, very close, uh, 20 feet maybe. Um, you know, no sign of a struggle. And I think the police, in a modern profiling sense, they determined this was a personal cause homicide, that the killers knew the victims, that uh, – one killer or both were emotionally entangled with one of the victims. And the immediate speculation was that Linda Bricka was the target. And there was an immediate controversy at the crime scene. Had she been raped? And the coroner and the lead investigator went back and forth on this. Now, I've seen the crime scene photos. Um, her breasts were exposed, and she was wearing a skimpy negligee, but it appeared to be because she had been thrown off the bed after being stabbed, and her body was thrown on top of Jerry's. Uh, her panties were in place. Eventually, the police determined she had not been raped, but that she had had recent intercourse, possibly the day before her murder. But I think the police were correct. This was not a burglary gone wrong. Uh, This was not a roving serial killer or maniac. Um, This was not a professional hit. Uh, This was not a cult. Um, This was someone emotionally involved with the victims. So in that aspect, I think they pushed off in the right direction with their investigation. You talk about they, or you write about that they speak to a neighbor and a who ends up being a babysitter for Linda. And from that, they get a lot about the situation between Jerry and Linda, possibly, at least from that event. Tell us about that event and what it tells police and indicates to police. Well, I'm sure they didn't call it victimology then in 66, but they were trying to get to know this family 
better than the family knew themselves. Um, they got a lot of information from Linda Zeff, the primary babysitter, who probably knew the family better than any non-relative, having spent so much time babysitting there. Um, it would be it would be incorrect to suggest this couple had a happy marriage. They'd had a trial separation in March of that year. Um, uh, there was disputes about Linda not wanting to have another child. Uh, she was certainly an animal lover and was interested in acquiring more pets, but not more children. This was at odds with what Jerry wanted. Um, this was a troubled marriage. Um, they only knew each other five months before they were married, and she was pregnant for a couple of those. So kind of a rocky start. And, um, um, you know, I, I, would, I don't want to blame any victims here, but I found it interesting. I interviewed um, three men who were inside the crime scene after the discovery. And the speculation about Linda Bricka having an affair started as they were looking at the dead bodies almost immediately, actually immediately. Speculation was that the motive for this murder was an adulterous affair that took a wrong turn into rage. We talked about that neighbor, and that neighbor that was babysitting, she mentioned that there was a confrontation where Linda was supposed to be back from work, and she was working yes. only one day at this veterinarian's clinic, and she was supposed to be home around 9. Jerry went to some event and came home late himself and still found that his wife hadn't returned home to take care of their child. You mentioned that this affair was a, was a rumor. Let's talk about the subject of that rumor, Dr. Fred Leininger. Yeah, let me, let me put a little basis to that. Um, chapters 4 and 5 of my book, I set up a timeline in Chapter 4 of the week leading up to the murders. Chapter 5 is the murder day, and this is piecing together into narrative form all the interviews and information all the witness statements um linda worked she went to work at the glenway animal hospital on monday september 19th uh, she'd been bugging the vet, the head vet there about a job um, she ended up working only three days that week monday tuesday and wednesday and the family was murdered that sunday and the obvious first question for me is, if Linda Bricka does not go to work at that clinic, is the family in fact murdered? Because the only break from her routine was taking that job at that clinic. Um, so um, um, the Wednesday night, I thought, was a pivotal night. Um Jerry's at a bachelor party, indicates he needs to go home. He needs to be home when his wife gets home from work. He gets home at 9 o'clock. She doesn't. He waits. He goes next door. His daughter is asleep, being babysat by a neighbor. Uh, he seems upset. He's wondering where Linda is. Uh, suddenly, at 10.30, an hour and a half late, she shows up uh, with whiskey on her breath um, indicated she had a drink with Dr. Fred Leininger, her boss at the clinic. Uh, Jerry became somewhat enraged, uh, made a threat. And I must say, Dan, it's only hearsay that he made that threat um, sure. because I don't find that actually in the case file. But I've got pretty good witness corroboration. But he didn't make the threat directly, and eventually he took his wife and child home. What's interesting, on Thursday morning, the normally reserved Jerry, who never talked about his family life, unloaded to his boss about how upset he was about what was going on with Linda, her being drunk, being late, and her association with this veterinarian. This is Thursday morning, and this guy's stepping totally out of character, venting to his boss about what happened the night before, and as I say in the book, that Wednesday night, the seeds of murder are sown. I don't know what went on between Linda and Dr. Fred Leininger that night, but I can say this. If, if you look at any murder victim, Dan, and today we look at who called him on the cell phone. 
You know, who were they? Um, who were they on social media with? But back then, um, it was basically about were they in each other's company? And Linda worked for Fred Leininger um, Monday through Wednesday. She tried to get in touch with him Thursday by leaving an emergency call at his answering service. She was seen with him Friday and Saturday in some out-of-the-way places, and she's murdered on Sunday. So of all the suspects in the file, she seemed to have most interaction with Dr. Fred Leininger, uh, a married vet uh, with five children under the age of 10. And they're seen together in some out-of-the-way places, and apparently the rumors had been going on about them for some time. And I can tell you this about the west side of Cincinnati, Dan. Um, my very first chapter in, in Summer's Almost Gone, the chapter title is Small Town City. Um, small town, big ears, wagging tongues, um, very conservative over there. Um, I would say, just generally speaking, uh, any affair that's exposed on the west side that involves a prominent businessman like Fred Leininger, that's going to be a problem. It's not the kind of thing anyone would want to come to light. Let, let's go backwards in this when the family is found murdered in midst of Cincinnati with a serial killer loose, a strangler, the Cincinnati strangler, and Various reports, you say in this investigation comes up, there's numerous obscene phone calls keep coming up in the reports, and we have other attacks. So there's all kinds of eyewitness reports, and when the police go to investigate this, they have to look at everyone and eliminate everybody before they can proceed. So exactly. they aren't, we, we can't let the audience un, uh, think that, that the police are focused initially or entirely on Fred Leininger at all. In yeah. fact, they had to go look at where Jerry worked and and look at relationships that he had and look very hard at his uh, temperament to see if there Absolutely. was some involvement. So tell us how police, police investigate this initially and where are some of the sort of tangents and in terms of suspects that the police go towards. Sure. I mean, Dan, this is the kind of case that a detective might catch once in a lifetime. And it's that kind of case. Um, I found it interesting that um, Cincinnati police tried to get jurisdiction on this, but the Bricker case was two blocks outside the city limits, so county took it on. Uh, the Cincinnati police had way more resources. But I noticed county went out of their way almost immediately to say that the killer of the Brickers was a white man. And I think they were trying to head off possible vigilante action. Uh, the Strangler has been identified as a black man. The immediate assumption when the Brickers are killed is the Strangler has moved out to the suburbs and changed his M.O. And the county made it very clear from the get-go Bricker Killer is a white man. Um, and I think the tension was so, racial tension was so great uh, that they had to get that out there immediately. I think something was maybe going to boil over. But so now you got this case, and um, sure, the rumors about lining are started immediately, but you don't want to get involved in a confirmation bias and try to tailor your case that way. They did over sure. 400 interviews. Um, everyone who had any contact with this family um, was, was, was looked at. Um, and it really comes down to, if you think about, um, um, think about the lack of computers then, Dan, um, you have to work on elimination. You have to look at everybody that knew this family and eliminate them. You know, you've got the inner circle, neighbors, friends, relatives, coworkers, babysitters, visitors. Then you've got regular delivery people, mailmen, paper boys, meter readers, uh, milkmen, bread trucks. Then you've got periodic on-site workers, you know, uh, tree trimmers, landscapers, uh, cleaning services. Um, all these people have to be checked. You know, something could have spawned this murder that happened years ago. You know, some random link 
So in the pre-computer age, their only chance to get a, a handhold on this case with this mass of information coming in, Dan, and seriously inundated with tips, absolutely. Sure. Um, and uh, the only thing they can really do um, is work on elimination. Who can we eliminate? Can we eliminate this tip? Can we eliminate this suspect? And hopefully you come down to the end and you've got somebody. But, you know, they had to look at everything. Um, rumors, gossip, undertones, hearsay, tangents. You know, I like to say objectivity never solved a murder case. You have to get right. subjective. You have to get down in the gutter. W what were the secrets going on that spawned this triple homicide. So um, based on what I just said and based on the amount of elimination, they did a pretty good job when at the end they had one guy still standing there, Dan, that they couldn't eliminate, and that was Dr. Fred Leininger. Let's use this as an opportunity for a second, JT, to talk about the sponsor of today's program, which is Zola. Zola is the wedding company that will do anything for love, and it's reinventing the wedding planning and registering experience to make the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. From engagement to wedding and decorating your first home, Zola is there, combining a passionate customer service with modern tools and technology, all in the service of love. Zola is the easiest way to plan your wedding and register. Zola makes the takes the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, your dream wedding registry. Affordable, save the dates and invitations, and easy-to-use planning tools. You start with a free wedding website. It's so easy and takes just minutes to set up. Over 100 beautiful wedding website designs to choose from that fit any couple style and every type of wedding. Then build your dream registry at Zola. Zola makes registering for newlyweds life so easy. Guests love free shipping and returns, price matching, and more. To start your free wedding website and also get $50 off your registry on Zola, go to Zola.com slash true murder. That's Zola, Z-Z-O-L-A, Z-O-L-A dot com slash true murder. We last spoke of the investigation that Hello? was pointing in different directions. Hello. We last spoke about we last spoke about the investigation turning to other suspects and one of those suspects was somebody that worked with uh, Jerry at Monsanto. Tell us why oh, yes. he was a suspect uh, for a time in this Bricka murder case. Yeah, they interviewed um, over 20 people at Monsanto, Dan. And by the way, I've been inundated with rumors that Monsanto knocked Jerry off because he was a whistleblower about Agent Orange. Not true. <laughs> but any. But anyway, um, he worked at a plastics plant in Cincinnati and Monsanto. They had nothing to do with Agent Orange. But that just shows you the wild rumors that surround this case. Um, Jim Cannon was one of 20 people, 20 to 25, interviewed at Monsanto. Um, very frosty relationship with Jerry Bricka. Um, almost came to blows at a company cookout. Uh, Cannon was the opposite of Jerry Bricka, both in work temperament and personal temperament. Thought he was God's gift to women and apparently paid a lot of attention to Linda Bricka whenever he was around her. And, um, you know, Jerry was pretty much a straight shooter. Uh, he was uh, he was Ivy League. Jim Cannon was a community college. And um, the night the bodies were discovered, on the 27th, some Monsanto people were standing outside in the gathering group. There was 50 to 60 people outside this house watching the activity. And Jim Cannon walks up um, and surprised these people. Uh, he tried to he suggested that he didn't know that was Jerry Bricka's house, even though they had carpooled. And he seemed to 
with the people he was talking to, he seemed to be oozing an alibi already. And when they did interview him, he had an exceptionally detailed alibi, um, mostly backed up by family members. So um, they took a good hard look at Jim Cannon, uh, unable to shake the alibi. Um, I still wonder about him because of his behavior um, after the crime. Uh, you know, people can lie, but behavior never lies. He acted like a guilty man. Maybe it's just because he figured they would suspect him. But he was certainly a good suspect. And, Dan, as you know, uh, we had a local TV celebrity that was interviewed. Right. Tell us about that. Well, that one's uh, – some people didn't care that I put this in the book. Um, a local kitty show host uh, called uh, Skipper Ryle. Uh, his name was Glenn Ryle. He was a local newscaster who – uh, ran a very successful um, children's show. I was actually on it. Um, he was interviewed because of his very close association with Dr. Fred Leininger, uh, the prime suspect. Uh, he and Glenn Ryle were exceptionally close and remained that way until Ryle's death in the early 90s, according to what witnesses said. Uh, Ryle drove a really recognizable motorcycle on the west side and it was often seen parked outside the Glenway Animal Hospital. Uh, it was seen parked there the days Linda Bricka worked there. It's very possible he knew Linda Bricka. Uh, he was kind of a bigger-than-life character, um, former uh, special forces, uh, trained to kill, uh, a large man, uh, a bow hunter uh, like Fred Leininger was. And... Um, I found it interesting that of the 400 or so interviews, 16 of them were flagged as suspicious or containing a key witness statement, and Ryle's interview was flagged. Um, said something to the effect of, he's obviously a close friend of Leininger, and we should not expect any help from him. So if you're looking at multiple killers here, which is something I've gone back and forth on, um, you've got a, a minor local celebrity who uh, is certainly a candidate for the partner if Leininger is looking for somebody to back him up. You know, if he's having a problem with Jerry Bricka, um, Glenn Ryle is on a list of, of possible people he would turn to. You know, I'm assuming when you're going to murder people and you need help, you, you go to the people you're closest to. <laughs> so sure. I'm not saying he's involved. Um it just seemed the police at the time were suspicious of him, and I can say honestly the cold case detectives that are working the case today are also still suspicious of him. Talk about the event with Robert Girton at this archery range and also what that tells police in terms of Fred and his, basically their interest in him as a suspect. Yeah, that's a that's a weird one, Dan. Um, Thursday night before the murders, um, Linda Bricka had made some strange comments um, to her babysitter and tried to get her babysitter again for Thursday night but couldn't. Uh, Linda places a call to Fred Leininger's answering service, and it's coded as an urgent call. So she's trying to get a hold of Dr. Fred Leininger Thursday night, um, urgently don't know if they ever connect that night or not but on friday morning linda calls the clinic and says her daughter debbie left a book there and fred leininger's right there when the call comes through with the book and he says he'll drop it off and apparently he does and hands it to debbie bricka playing in her front yard he then goes to shoot archery with some of his friends at a a secluded range out there and Linda Bricka shows up and according to the witness there Leininger's friend that he became very uncomfortable with her there and um, the friend finally left he said he felt kind of like a third wheel and when he left there on Friday afternoon around one o'clock Fred Leininger and Linda Bricka are alone in a secluded area of, of the west side um, at a archery range uh, way out on um, uh, Muddy Creek Road, I think it was, and they're alone there. And she's murdered two days later with her family. 
So um, seems very odd. Uh, she eventually lied to a neighbor about where she was because she had a neighbor watching Debbie during this period, said she was getting her car worked on. Well, she did get her car worked on that morning, but not that afternoon. But the trick is not to lie more than you have to. So something was going on Friday afternoon. I think Linda's call about the book to the clinic is a coded message for her and Leininger to meet. Everybody's got to remember this is 1966. You can't text someone or call their cell phone or or message them, Snapchat them. You know, there's just landlines. It's not even any answering machines. So uh, very odd that she would call to get this book returned on this Friday morning, a children's book, and that Fred Leininger immediately jumped up and said, I'll take it over there. Seems like a coded message to me. And what went on between them when they were by themselves at that secluded location on Friday? Open to speculation. Um, Linda had told several people while at the wedding of Jerry's sister in San Francisco three weeks before that her period was late and she might be pregnant. Now, that interests me because I honestly don't think that she and Jerry were having sexual relations that summer and fall. Right. I think Jerry was spending a lot of time on the couch. Was she pregnant? Who by? Um, you know, if Leininger is the killer, you know, what what corner did she push him into to make him do this? You know, what was what was the secret of their relationship? What was the nature of their relationship? And uh, at some point, Dan, we need to talk about that interview on October 8th. You talk about the Dan? interview October 8th. Yeah. What What is his alibi, and how do police check that alibi, and what do they come up with? Yeah. Um, well, they... I found it interesting, Dan, that they did eight interviews on Wednesday, September 28th. Now, they found the bodies the previous night. So who did they interview first? They went right to Monsanto first. But they also interviewed Linda Bricka's employer that week. So they interviewed Fred Leininger on that day after the bodies were found. And it was kind of a perfunctory interview. But I could see already that they were looking at this guy a bit askance. Um, even this short 10-minute interview apparently raised some questions, um, some things he volunteered without them asking, like he was trying out a story. And then the rumors about him and Linda Bricker increased you know, as the investigation went on. So they finally sat down with Fred Leininger on October 8, 1966, at his place of business. And this is the interview that kind of turned the case it's what detectives like to call the moment dan you know um you're interrogating a guy and he starts tripping over his own tongue and uh these interrogators were good i mean a good interrogator asks short questions that demand long answers and then they ask those same questions in a different way you know they're just trying to get contradictions and um apparently Fred Leininger, during this interview, became so flustered and um, so um, befuddled and started leaking consciousness of guilt. And when he was asked about his alibi for the night in question, you'd have thought he'd have been more prepared um, because he, he came up with two things and the police knew both of them were untrue. And it's basically like they caught him in a lie twice. And he also lied about when he last saw Linda Bricka. He said it was Wednesday night at work, which was the last night she worked there. And yet Leininger's own friend places him with her on Friday, and people in the neighborhood place Linda with Leininger on Saturday before the murders. So he's lied about when he last saw her. He lied about his alibi twice, and uh, he apparently became quite confused when asked about her urgent message to him on Thursday night. He claimed he never got it. And, you know, I've heard the tape of the interview, and I can I can hear his voice getting chalky, you know, a little quavery, but I'm trying to imagine the visual cues 
that the two investigators must have seen as, you know, as they they saw him literally probably starting to sweat. And when they asked him the nature of your relationship with Linda Bricka, he terminated the interview. And he'd been telling them all through the interview that he was pressed for time. And with that question, he terminated the interview, and he went home and immediately lawyered up. This was on a Saturday when they tried to interview both him and his wife on Monday. We have nothing to say. Here's our lawyer's card. So the prime suspect has retained a lawyer, which he certainly has the right to do. And the police, Hamilton County Sheriff's Department, never again sat down with Fred Leininger. That, um, that October 8th interview, the second interview of Leininger, was the last time they ever spoke to him officially. You talk well, about suspect, the attorney. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I suspect, as I mentioned in the book, they certainly spoke to him in ways afterwards. Uh, they maintained surveillance on this man for at least three years. And there were some incidents where Hamilton County Sheriff's deputies might accost him coming out of a restaurant and say things like, wow, how could somebody do what they did to that little bricker girl? You know, how could they live with themselves? And, you know, he's got to just take it. You know, he could be with his family either. So they stayed on top of this guy for years later. But um, I think in the end, the uh, uh, prosecuting attorney um, felt they didn't have enough to go to a grand jury. And, you know, they really didn't, uh, other than his demeanor and his connection to the victim. Uh, Unfortunately, we had a real lack of physical evidence, um, but we do have a DNA profile now. You talk about the attorney that he... Uh, obtained, and you talked that he was a former state uh, representative, and he was an auditor. He was, he was, a, he was the Moore. son. He was he was the son okay. of a former um, state representative. He was a member of a prominent West Side family. Uh, Leininger didn't just get any lawyer. He mm-hmm. he really went up the food chain. Um, he got a guy with tons of West Side political connections, and. I think the Hamilton County investigators were just a little bit intimidated by this guy. And then we have the Miranda ruling just passed that July. You know, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. There was some question about how to interpret this when when interrogating Leininger. And in the end, I think the combination of of the, the stance of the lawyer, the tremendously protective stance, and the uncertainty over the Miranda ruling and how to interpret it, um, the thing just stalemated. It, it just literally came to an impasse. And I've seen other cases where this happened. People ask me, why didn't they go to trial? Why didn't they charge him? Why didn't they get a conviction? You know, their, their best thing they could have done, Dan, was um, subpoena him to a grand jury. He would have had to show up without his attorney. But his attorney would have told him to take the fifth on anything he was uncomfortable answering, and then he walks out of there a free man. So that's really what it came down to, why they couldn't close it. You talk about him being the likely suspect, and then a surveillance, and then new advances in DNA technology. Um, You talk about them never finding the murder weapon, but there was some DNA it termed samples, and they were. Tell us about the DNA. Let's talk about the physical evidence here, and I'll include that. Um, uh, there was a carving knife missing from the Bricka house, um, and the sheath for the knife. It definitely would have fit the wounds. Um, there was some question of whether it was kept away in a drawer or out on the bureau. Uh, if it was kept in a drawer, obviously somebody that knew the family would know it's there. But um, um, the knife was missing. Was it the murder weapon? I don't know. Could have been a red herring. Um, I didn't get a much chance to talk about Jerry Bricka's physique, Dan. When I saw these crime scene right. photos, this guy was about 5'9", 190 pounds. 
He looked like a college wrestler. He looked like a bantam weightlifter. Um, not a tall man, extremely muscular build. And I saw morgue photos taken the next day. Uh, saw him naked on a morgue slab. He's been dead three days, and he still looked very physically imposing. I almost immediately, when I saw this, I remember I looked up at the cold case detective across from me, and I said, two killers. I don't believe one guy with a carving knife could have handled him. This is a man who would have fought like a tiger to save his wife, his daughter. And he was slaughtered basically like a like a lamb to slaughter, um, totally unaware of, of the danger, I suspect. And to me, that tells me there's a second man with a gun. Um, there appeared to be some ligatures possibly used on the two adult victims that were removed. Um, Jerry was stabbed mostly from the back, Linda from the front. And, you know, you've got a rage killing in that bedroom, perhaps, controlled rage. And then the murder of the child is nothing more than the elimination of a witness. Debbie was four and talked like she was ten. She could recognize people, speak in complete paragraphs. She was killed because she knew at least one of the killers. But um, not a lot of physical evidence at all. No good fingerprints. And back then, Dan, fingerprints were DNA, basically. But... They didn't compromise the crime scene enough in the two murder rooms that they actually came up with a DNA profile of the killer. And this was based on Marlboro cigarette butts smoked in the murder bedroom, and neither of the two adult victims smoked. Um, Some hair found in Linda Bricka's hand, clasped in her hand, and the seminal fluid taken from her from either the rape or the recent intercourse, depending on which theory you would ascribe to. And I can say this with with certainty, based on blood type on that semen, the man she had had, um, recent intercourse with had a different blood type than Jerry. So we know that. So we've got this DNA profile now. Um, They've sent it through CODIS. You know, known felons. No hits, predictably. Obviously, I could have told them that. But here's the thing. And, you know, everybody now is so DNA-oriented. You know, what do they call it? The CSI of America. Um, This is not a very clean DNA profile. Um, The way it was described to me, uh, we wouldn't get an O.J. Simpson-type number here. You know, one in 17 million people fit this profile, and Mr. Simpson is one of them. be nothing like that. Um, Possibly could get a one in 25, one in 30 men fit this profile. That is not – that's short odds, but it's long odds in the DNA game. Um, And – Again, I suppose a a guy could say, well, yeah, I smoked some cigarettes over there and I had intercourse with her. I didn't kill her. So I don't think the DNA is going to yield a resolution to this case. Um, Obviously, if things had been preserved better in 1966, maybe that's a different story. But, you know, who who knew anything about DNA in 1966? (laughs) Yeah, it's just a vagrant fantasy. So um, that's kind of where we sit. I don't think that profile is going to move this case forward, and I don't think we'll see any cooperation for familial, familial DNA from Leininger's family. And it's tough to get a prime suspect exhumed. It's not easy to do, and, um, you know, there's basically a bias against exhuming people that have been obviously consecrated and buried. So I don't think we're going to get anything from the Leininger family either. So um, the only thing that profile has done is eliminate known felons. You talk about uh, Leininger being dead. Tell us about that and about his wife. Well, isn't that funny, Dan? You know, I, I hear rumors about this case all the time, and some of them sound ridiculous to me. Like when somebody first told me, Skipper Ryle was a suspect 
I said, the kiddie show host? You're kidding me. Well, he's interviewed, and it's flagged. Um, but um, um, with um, Leininger, the rumor I heard was he and his wife killed themselves. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And by God, it was true. Um, Fred Leininger and his wife were living in Sarasota, Florida. And by the way, Dan, this isn't in the book, but Chief Investigator Herb Vogel ran into Fred Leininger and his wife in Sarasota at a University of Cincinnati alumni dinner. And Phyllis Phyllis um, um, Vogel told me they she and Herb walked in and ran right into Fred and Lynn Leininger, like literally in front of them. And right Fred on. and Lynn Leininger immediately did an about-face moved to the other side of the room and never came near them the rest of the night. But the rumor was that they had killed themselves in a hotel in Cincinnati, in a suicide pact. And it's absolutely true. They drove up from Sarasota, checked into a hotel. They had um, instructions for their children. They had uh, cash gifts for grandchildren for birthdays. Uh, Fred put a suit in the closet with a note that said, bury me in this. And they uh, took overdoses of morphine. Um, he died. She lapsed into a coma and died nine months later. So um, interesting to think, Dan, what um, what kind of conversation did they have right at the end there? Uh, Lynn Leininger has been married to him for 52 years. For 37 of those years, her husband's been the prime suspect in a grisly triple homicide. I mean, she she has to think him innocent, or I assume she'd go insane. But don't you have to wonder, you know, did she ask him right before they um, took their own lives? Did she ask him to come clean? Did he? Um, you know, those are the kind of things we can only speculate on. He left a suicide note. There was no mention of the um, um, rumors that had dogged him in terms of being a suspect. So, yes, our prime suspect ended his own life, and I pointed out other circumstantial evidence against him in the book. Um, he was seen near the crime scene in a convenience store at the time of the crime trying to use a payphone, and he appeared to be very distraught and confused. And this puts him a half a mile from our murder scene at the time of the murders. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to him. Uh, in the court of the armchair detective, Dan, boy, he's my number one with a bullet. I mean, he's he's all alone. In a court of law, it's not even an indictment. Yeah. What was one of the more horrifying facts about this is that it looked like to investigators that tell us about what investigators discovered, what at least was indicated about the fate of about the fate of Debbie Bricka? Well, I think she was killed last. Um, she was dragged from underneath the bed, and it appeared Jerry had been putting her to bed when the killers arrived. He always took off her knee socks. One was off laying on the bed, and one was on her leg. So he appeared to have been interrupted while putting her to bed. At some point, Debbie crawls under the bed, uh, as the violence in the next in the next door bedroom is going down against her parents, and she is dragged out and very methodically, I would say, based on the wounds I saw, stabbed four times in the back, and the blade went all the way through her body. I saw no rage there, no anger. Um, this was fear. The only thing they felt toward Debbie was fear of being identified. You know, they had nothing against her, but. People ask, why did they kill the child? It's it's pretty simple. She knew the killers. So, uh, you know, I looked at the crime scene photos of the adults quite a bit because I'm trying to learn from them. It was hard to look at the pictures of Debbie. You know, I can remember my daughter, my granddaughter at that age. Um, just really hard to, to look at that. Um, you know, I just kind of passed over it real quick. They were afraid of her. They killed her. What would the some of the witnesses said that she referred to Dr. Leininger as what? 
Uncle Fred, three witnesses close to the family. Debbie referred to Fred Leininger as Uncle Fred. Linda, with her love for animals, almost a pathological obsession with animals, was constantly over at that clinic conferring with Leininger with Debbie. And apparently she'd been pestering him about a job for months. And again, Dan, I'll say it again. She goes to work there for the first time on Monday before the murders, works three days, and is murdered four days later with her family. If she doesn't go to work at that clinic, does this even happen? Did she learn something at this clinic about something Leininger was doing? Because, Dan, as you know, reading the book, there were a number of suspicious veterinarians um, uh, on that side of town, um, strange veterinary practices going on, a theft of animal tranquilizers from clinics, um, people taking healthy pets in and having been called the next day and saying they died and we've cremated the body. Uh, strange things going on. Um, if Linda Bricka worked at that clinic and found out that some harm was coming to animals somehow, either by Leininger or one of his veterinary friends, she's not going to let that go. Right. So did she learn something? And if she's physically involved with him and feels betrayed by what he's doing and threatens to blow the whistle, Leininger's comfortable little life will implode. His great business, his marriage, his five kids, his reputation. And this guy was very status conscious. Everybody I interviewed that knew him, very concerned about his image and his standing in the community. So if we're looking for motives for murder, they're all there. Uh, Personal cause homicide. He is involved with a female victim. The affair takes a wrong turn into rage and or fear. And that, to me, is the brick of case. Absolutely. You include in this book uh, some incredible photos, uh, including crime scene photos, um, uh, kudos to you for the inclusion of all of these incredible photos of uh, the homes and locations, uh, a map. Uh, I got, all 160, of I got 165 images in there, Dan. And yeah. if you've read my books, I don't put 20 pictures in the middle of a book. I give you tons of images placed in the chapters where you need them. That's what true crime people want to see. And I also put a lot of section breaks in so the reader can rest and kind of gather all they learn. I mean, this is a very complex case. Um, I had to put a massive amount of file information and try to make it into an interesting narrative. Dan, it was originally 590 pages. I got it down to 520. <laughs> yeah. That includes the appendix, too. Um, so, um, yeah, I went after a lot of images. There's, there's pictures of the family that have never been published. Um, uh, crime scene photos of the strangler victims in there. Um, and look at the cameo appearances in this narrative, Dan, Richard Speck killed the eight nurses in Chicago in 1966, Mm -hmm. Charles Whitman, the very first tower sniper, um, Valerie Percy, the daughter of senatorial candidate Charles Percy, is murdered a week before the Brickas. Um, Just an unusual year for true crime in the nation. And I think some of those crimes kind of dwarfed what was going on in Cincinnati. But I tell you, you you got a conservative Midwestern city confronting a mysterious serial killer while reeling from the slaughter of a beautiful suburban family in 1966. Um, It's quite a crime story in its own right. And, um, you know, that's why this book had to get out there. Absolutely. Yes, it's an incredible time and an incredible response by media and the public, the fear and the investigation that did not lead to a conviction. I want to thank you very much, JT, for coming on and talking about Summer's Almost Gone, the Bricka family murders, the most notorious cold case in Cincinnati history. Thank you very much, JT Townsend. Hey, Dan, do I have a quick second here? Absolutely. Um, Book is exclusively available 
at my website, my agent would want me to say this, www.jttownsend.com. Running a little special today with a coupon code, but again, that's um, jttownsend.com, hardcover, softcover, uh, looking for the uh, ebook in January. There's my wow. plug. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was going to ask you for that and how would people might be able to get a copy and see your other work, uh, Queen City Gothic and Queen City Notorious as well. That's uh, links to buy those are on the website. Um, you know, I like to, I really write books with a true crime fan in mind. Lots of photos, um, lots of pages, lots of space breaks, short paragraphs. Um, you know, I like, I write the books the way I would want to read them, you know, the way I want a true crime book to be. So uh, uh, I hope people buy it and enjoy it. It's a really incredible part of Cincinnati's history, you know, the underside of it. Um, and I can honestly say Cincinnati lost its innocence in 1966 because of these events. So Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on, Dan. Thank you very much. It was a certainly a crime that changed Cincinnati forever. Thank you very much for talking about summers almost gone. J.T. Townsend, you have a great evening. Good night. You too. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.